Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When, the, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you yet, I'm so glad to see you here. Welcome to Sojourn. Um, I hope you join us for lunch afterward. Look forward to hopefully meeting you. Um, the question that uh, this sermon is focused on is what this passage is focused on. What do you think of Jesus? What do you think? of Jesus? That's the question before us. If you haven't got your Bibles open yet, um, we're in Luke chapter four, as you heard Dodds read. Uh, we're walking through a series in the gospel of Luke. And as we walk through the gospel of Luke, we'll realize that more and more we're learning about Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he said. And the question that we come to repeatedly, sometimes explicitly, like in this passage, is what do we think about Jesus? Uh, Jesus comes to his town, his hometown synagogue in this passage to teach concerning his ministry. By the end of this passage, his hearers are filled with wrath and ready to kill him. So it's quite an intense scene. And I'm uh, eager to see what the Lord has for us from it this morning. Ultimately, this passage is about God's plan and Jesus's role in it and the human response at the revelation of that plan. And so my plan for this morning is this. We're gonna look at three things. We're gonna look at the declaration of Jesus we're going to look at the rejection of Jesus, and then we're going to look at the grace of Jesus. The declaration of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, and the grace of Jesus. So first, let's look at the declaration. 
To set the scene, Jesus has, we're told just before our passage, begun uh, his ministry on a positive note. We see in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus had returned from his baptism and temptation in the wilderness to the Spirit of Galilee, or excuse in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So his ministry had begun on a positive note. And here he comes back to Nazareth, his hometown. And on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue where we told, we're told he stands in the synagogue uh, to read the scripture, the scroll to him. He finds the passage that he wants to read, and then he reads it. Fun fact, this is the earliest, from a historic perspective, this is the earliest writing that we have about what it looked like to worship in the synagogue. So we get kind of a sense of the fact that there's an attendant with a scripture. There's scripture reading happening in, this, in, the, in the synagogue. There's also a sermon that Jesus stands up and preach, uh, preaches after he reads the scripture. This is the scripture that Jesus chooses to read. It's from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the Jews were people who knew their Bibles. I have a a, a professor told a story about a friend of his um, who was a Greek uh, expert in translation. He was talking with a friend of his who's a rabbi, a Hebrew expert. They were talking about Bible translation and my professor was telling a story about his friend realized as he was talking that this Hebrew scholar wasn't looking at a passage. He was just reciting things from memory. So he asked, it seems like you have a lot of scripture memorized. He said, well, yeah. Well, do you have this memorized? Yeah. Like the whole thing? Yeah. What about this book? What about this book? And it turns out this man had the entire Old Testament memorized. All, all, of the Old Testament. And so the guy, so my professor's friend said, that's interesting, can I quiz you on it? And so he sat and he quizzed him on it. So he opened up to kind of random chapters and the man would be able to recite entire passages of scripture from memory. This is kind of hard for us to fathom today because in an age where we have devices in our pockets and books easily, readily accessible, we don't have the need to memorize like that. And so we've lost kind of even the ability to conceive of someone having memorized an entire Bible. But this would, this would have been normal, for, at least for rabbis and for all of the Jewish people, for all of the Jewish faithful, a significant portion of their childhood was spent memorizing scripture because God had commanded his people to keep the scriptures close to their heart. And if you think back before the printing press, before widespread literacy, when pen and, you know, pen and paper were very expensive and you didn't have a lot of paper and stuff to read in ordinary homes. What's the best way to, observe, to, to obey God's commandment? To keep the scripture, the word of God close to your heart? You keep it up here. So it would have memorized and recited time and time again. The reason I tell you that is because when Jesus reads this passage, it's like he's casting a hook into the book of Isaiah and he's pulling out the whole context. So this immediate, just these verses is not the isolated thing that they would have been thinking about. They would have been thinking about what came before, what came after, the whole context. They knew this passage. Um, As soon as Jesus started reading, you can picture those in the synagogue kind of mouthing along because they would have known it well. And that would have been particularly true of this passage in Isaiah 61. Historically speaking, God's people had been in exile for centuries, having been carried away in captivity Uh, from their land. And even though they'd been restored to their land, it was only a partial restoration because they sat under the oppressive oppressive, uh, empire of Rome. And so through the prophets, God had told his people that their exile was a consequence of their sin, 
but he'd also promised through the prophets that there was a coming restoration. And Isaiah is a prime example of this. The whole second half of Isaiah is passage after passage of beautiful and glorious descriptions of what God's promised restoration for his people would look like and how it would come about. And so that's the section of Isaiah that Jesus is quoting from. It's one of the central promises of restoration. And by the time of Jesus, we know that this passage was a picture for the Jews, not just of particular miraculous signs, but this was, these signs would have signaled the dawn of a new age the new age of God's coming salvation arriving for his people. So when Jesus reads from this passage, this is where their minds would have gone. So let's look at the passage, at the the lines of the passage for just a moment. And in the context of the Old Testament, we'll see that each of the phrases that Jesus quotes have both physical and spiritual connotations. So let's look. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So throughout the Old Testament, the poor and the rich are described in a particular way. Uh, The poor are spoken of as those who are open to God. The rich are described as those who are self-sufficient. The poor are not self-sufficient. They're needful and waiting upon the Lord. It's the same word, of course, that Jesus uses when he says the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. There he modifies it by saying poor in spirit as a way of capturing the understanding of what the Old Testament promises about good news to the poor actually mean. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not promising earthly blessing necessarily. He's promising heavenly blessing in the form of the kingdom of God. This is certainly a reference, therefore, to the humble spirit. It also happens to fit very well the description of those who are poor are those who often sense their need the greatest and they're most most responsive to God's message of hope in Christ. Of course, over the course of Jesus's ministry, uh, the people who primarily came to him and responded well to his message were those who were poor, those who were outcasts, those who were thought of as less than. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The word for captives here is used most often in the Old Testament to refer to exiles, those who had been carted off in captivity to other nations. And here again, there are spiritual overtones. Given that when God's people found themselves in exile, this exile they knew was on on account of their sin, right? It wasn't just their oppressor's fault. It was their fault. So when Isaiah 61 speaks of the one coming who would proclaim liberty to the captives, not only is he heralding a release from exile, but also a release from that which caused the exile, a release from the bondage to sin. So there's real physical promise, liberty that is promised physically and also spiritually from sin. He goes on, and recovering of sight to the blind. So this is certainly a reference to the physical miracle of the blind person receiving their sight back. Jesus performs this miracle a number of times, but again here, light and darkness imagery, seeing and not being able to see have spiritual uh, overtones. Back in Luke chapter one, Zechariah had prophesied regarding his son, John, that he would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So you see Zechariah is talking about forgiveness from sin, salvation in terms of light and darkness that those who can't see receive light from God so they can see. Later on in Luke chapter eight, when Jesus talks about the parables, he says, to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they're in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. 
So again, understanding the things of God, the teaching of God, is a matter of being able to see or not being able to see. The promise, therefore, of the blind recovering their sight was certainly physical, but it was also deeply spiritual. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to do these things. Then he says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So coming right after proclaiming liberty to the captives, this sounds a bit repetitive. Again, in the Old Testament context, oppression uh, was closely associated with slavery and exiles, also associated with being poor, being oppressed by the rich. So it sounds kind of repetitive for him to say this, but this time the wording's a bit different. The previous phrase told us that the one who's anointed with the spirit will proclaim liberty, will announce freedom. This is what the prophets would do. But in this line, we read that this one who is anointed with the spirit will set at liberty the oppressed. So he won't just announce, he would actually set them free. In other words, this was no mere prophet. This was a different kind of figure. This was the Messiah, the one who would come and actually set his people free. Finally, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, so forth and so on, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to what's known as the Jubilee in the Old Testament law. Every 50th year, God's people were to observe the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, uh, where the entire community would decide to practice a gracious reset of all debts. Right. Every debt would be forgiven, land would be restored to the original owner, slaves would be freed um, as a reflection of the fact that God is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And now we know that God's people had never truly observed the year of Jubilee. The commands were so comprehensive and so unfathomable in the real world uh, that they had taken this teaching regarding Jubilee and bumped it forward in redemptive history. The Jews understood the year of Jubilee as coming with the Messiah. He's going to be the one who, who helps us to actually observe this year of the Lord's favor, this year of forgiveness and jubilee. So this is the passage that Jesus reads. The promise of the coming Messiah, who would proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a glorious promise of God's coming restoration, almost unthinkable grace and mercy from God toward his people. And then Jesus stops. Verse 20, Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. See, up to this point, Jesus' hearers are with him. They had undoubtedly rehearsed these phrases for as long as they could remember. And here, when Jesus finishes the reading and sits and begins to teach, they're focused on him. It's as if you could hear a pin drop in the synagogue. Just before our passage uh, in Luke 4, verse 14, we're told that Jesus has already been ministering and that a report had gone out through all the surrounding countries. So the Nazareth, the, the people in the synagogue in Nazareth would have heard that Jesus had been teaching and doing miracles and all these kinds of things. And so here's Jesus reading this. What is he gonna say about this passage? Verse 21, and Jesus began to say to them. So began to say to them, that's what tells us that Jesus, had pre Jesus likely preached a sermon here that Luke did not preserve the whole sermon. He began with this statement, explained what he meant, and then there was some dialogue when the people were obviously uncomfortable with the claim that he made. But he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
So Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, this is about me. I'm the one anointed by the spirit of the Lord to proclaim these things to you because I have read this. This scripture is talking about me because I've read this to you. The scripture has now been fulfilled. This is what is before you, Jesus is telling them. Today, the, the time is now. What you've been hoping for, you need not hope anymore because I'm here. And this is very good news. It's worth pausing here for a moment in 2023 to think about what this means, what this tells us about life in this world. I don't know about you, but I love dystopian stories, like dystopian fiction. You know what that means? Like the picture of the Hunger Games or 1984, or uh, Atlas Shrugged, The Man in the High Castle is a new Netflix series um, that kind of speculates what would life be like if Germany and Japan had won World War II, just like world is falling apart. Uh, dystopia is the opposite of utopia, kind of paradise. The world is falling apart, the strong oppress the weak, things seem to be getting worse. Then a protagonist of some sort appears, right, promising uh, relief or deliverance, and he or she is met with uh, both support, but then also resistance. You see, the thing about dystopian stories is that we read the books, we see the movies, but then we get back to our lives thinking, man, thankfully that's not the real world. Thankfully that's not real life. But if we pause and think about what Jesus says here, life in the world is not a utopia. Life in the world seems a lot more like the dystopian stories that we see or read about. And that's because it is dystopian. The world, as we know, is not a utopia of progress and freedom. It's a dystopia of bondage, blindness, and experiencing the effects of the curse of sin. See, now, today, we might be tempted to look back on this, the world 2,000 years ago, and think, oh, yes, back then, the concept of healing and deliverance and freedom would have been super easy to long for. But look how far we've come. Right, it's 2023. Look how far we've come since then. With modern medicine, there's a treatment plan for most ailments. With modern liberal democracy, we've secured freedom from oppression. Right, there's a way for the poor to become rich. We've seen the elevation of human rights inequality. But the thing is, if we slow down for a moment, it's worth questioning just how far we have come. Now, don't get me, don't get me wrong. Modern medicine is amazing. It is far better to live today than it was to live 50 years ago even, much less 2,000 years ago, based on the advances in modern medicine. My wife is in healthcare. My dad was a doctor. Modern medicine is amazing. But with that said, medical malpractice is at an all-time high. The medical system exacerbates the gap between the rich and the poor, and death and suffering continue to be ever-present partners of human life. The modern liberal democracy, likewise, is rightly seen as an improvement from many systems of government that have gone before. But the quest for freedom and equality for all still lingers around the question of freedom for whom? Most modern liberal democracies continue to see violence, populist movements, a gravitation toward totalitarian leaders, the increased division and discord that we're so familiar with this year. The book of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. If we think about it, it's not too hard to realize that the things that God promised through the prophet Isaiah some 2,700 years ago, that's when the prophecy of Isaiah was written. 
the things that Jesus came to fulfill, these are our cries even today. The plight of the poor being resolved, healing from sickness being experienced, relief and justice for the oppressed. For us today, just as it was back then, this declaration of Jesus is good news. To the question of when the one would come to do these things, Jesus looked at his hearers and said, I'm here, today is the day. So you would think then that Jesus's words are met with celebration, but let's look at how he's met. At first, they marvel at his words. But then after Jesus makes a few more comments, we see that they become, they become filled with wrath. They drive him out of town so they can throw him off a cliff. So what happened to provoke such anger? Uh, let's read on. What seems initially, what might seem like a positive response to Jesus in their marveling, uh, actually turns out to be a mixed response at best. After he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, we read in verse 22 that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So in their response, we see that Jesus is met with both amazement and skepticism. This is a common response to Jesus. They're marveling at his gracious words, but they can't get past the fact that his heritage doesn't match his claim. Come on, Jesus. We know you're Joseph's son. What are you talking about? It's likely that their marveling at his gracious words is primarily an affirmation of his rhetorical skill, of his, his speaking. They'd heard about his sermons. They'd heard his preaching was gathering thousands and they listened to him and they say, wow, he, this, the boy can preach. But his claims are excessive for a Galilean Jew. He's from Nazareth. Isn't this Joseph's son? It reminds me of another phrase that were, another opinion that were shared elsewhere in the New Testament, which was a common opinion at the time. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? At best, this reads kind of like the reaction a strong politician might get from his opponent. He's a great speaker, but I just don't agree with his point of view. The reason we know this is a question coming from disagreement is because of how Jesus responds. Verses 23 and following, Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Pause there. So like I said a moment ago, the people from Nazareth would undoubtedly have heard about his preaching uh, and his miracles. And so when he comes to Nazareth, to the place where he grew up, to the synagogue where people had known him his whole life, their response is, come on, Jesus, we've known you your whole life. These are bold claims you've made. Now prove it. Show us your stuff. There's also clearly some territorial jealousy in the region, right? Eventually we'll find out that Capernaum becomes the center for Jesus's ministry. But Jesus had evidently done a bunch of miracles in Capernaum and that hadn't gone unnoticed in Nazareth. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They would have asked. They want him to do it here in Nazareth too. But Jesus doesn't respond with miracles. He will not perform signs to satisfy jealousy or a lack of faith. Instead, he sees their reaction to him as the fulfillment of a pattern. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. It is proverbial that a great man is often regarded with suspicion and even rejection among his own people. As is often said, familiarity breeds contempt. And there's a word play here that's worth noting out. The word 
uh, in the original language for acceptable in this verse is the same as the word for favor in that Isaiah quote. So to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, no prophet is favored in his hometown. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Those can both be translated uh, the same, it's the same word. The irony that Jesus is pointing out in this wordplay is that the time is acceptable for the Lord to bring salvation through Jesus as Messiah, but it's not acceptable to the people, right? Jesus has the favor of God, but not the favor of the people. We're not, we don't want this, God. So with this, you can see what Jesus is doing. Your eyes are on me. I want you to know that the passage is, I am who the passage is about. That's what Jesus is saying. They're clearly squirming in their seats. This is a huge claim for Jesus to make. The fulfillment of the promises and purposes of God. We've been waiting for this for years, but this is Joseph's son. You can't say stuff like this, Jesus. We want to see these signs that we've been hearing about, but Jesus doesn't respond with a sign. He looks at them and essentially says, you were going to reject me even before I arrived. And it's more than just a personal rejection of him. It's a rejection of the plan of God. He says, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You are rejecting a prophet. That's what Jesus is saying. Now to this synagogue full of faithful Jews who knew their scriptures, who had spent their lives worshiping and pursuing the Lord, straining to trust the word of God and his promises, you can imagine this wouldn't have been very well received. This would have caused them to transition from squirming in their seats to sitting up a little bit. Oh, okay, Jesus, I see what you're saying. It gets worse. It's like Jesus has got the ball on the tee and then he grabs his driver. He recounts for them two stories from the Old Testament about the prophets Elijah and Elisha. These are super well-known, beloved stories among the Jews. Jews, even today, love Elijah. He is their Christ figure, so to speak. They were expecting Elijah to come back to announce the arrival of Messiah. There were a lot of Elijah expectations. And so Jesus, quoting Isaiah, he does so in kind of an ironic ironic way because it's worth noting that at the time of Elijah and Elisha, that was a very low point in Israel's history. It's characterized by a famine that was brought about by God as a judgment for the unfaithfulness of God's people. God's provision and prophetic signs were absent from the land of Israel in the days of Elijah and Elisha. They went to other nations to do their miracles. God's people had rejected God's prophets and they'd paid a price for it. And so Jesus has just spoken to the worshipers at the synagogue in Nazareth about rejecting him as a prophet. And he goes to the big guns from their big book who are rejected in a time of unfaithfulness. So there's the context. And what does Jesus point in these stories? Let's look at the story of Elijah to begin with, verses 25 and 26. But in truth, Jesus says, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So there's a famine, Jesus says. Many people were hungry in Israel. Widows in Israel were hungry, but Elijah didn't go to any of the Israelite widows. He went to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside of Israel, to a Gentile woman. One of the last people you'd expect to be blessed by a prophet of Israel. In the story we're told, it's 1 Kings 17 and 18. The Gentile woman's faith is noted in contrast with the faithlessness of the Israelites. She is a prime example of the hungry being fed by God, the poor in spirit. 
Look at the story about Elisha, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So from the hungry, Jesus turns to leprosy, which is a debilitating, degenerative, incurable disease. There were many lepers in the land of Israel. But who does God heal through the prophet Elisha? None of them, except Naaman, who was a general in the Syrian army, an enemy of God's people. And he's also prideful and brash. He's clearly portrayed in the story there in 2 Kings chapter 5 as someone who is clearly undeserving of the mercy of God. Again, one of the last people you'd expect to receive blessing of the prophet of Israel. And again, the acceptance of the words of a prophet of Israel by a Gentile, Naaman the Syrian, is emphasized. So you see the point that Jesus is driving at. Though these prophets were rejected by the people of Israel, they were accepted by those outside the land. If you won't receive God's blessing, God will take it elsewhere. Jesus is seated in the synagogue, teaching concerning the coming salvation of God, looking around and saying, you must recognize your need for the healing work of God because you are at risk of missing it. This is, this is one more key detail in both of these stories. You may be familiar with the story of Zarephath. Uh, Elijah sent to her during a, family, during a famine, excuse me, and he asked her for water and food. And her response was, I only have food enough for one more meal for me and my son. We're getting ready to eat it and then die. So she's desperately poor, desperately hungry. They're about to die of starvation. And Elijah says, don't fear, give me the food anyway, and it won't run out. And so in a place of desperation, she listens to him. She trusts God's word more than her eyes can see. Naaman the Syrian was a leper, hopeless situation. But when a little Israelite girl who he had taken in slavery in a raid said to him, you're sick, you should go to this prophet in Israel who can heal you. Naaman listens. This prideful bigot of a general listens. But then he comes and when Elisha tells him to wash himself in the Jordan River, he looks at it and in anger essentially says, what do you mean? I don't see anything special about this river. I have rivers back home. But when his servants point out the words of the prophet again, wash and be clean, we're told that again in a place of desperation, Naaman did according to the word of the man of God and that he was cleansed. And so in both of those situations, we can imagine the woman with her last crumbs of food, Naaman in desperate sickness. Neither of them looking at what their eyes could see were probably very confident that a miracle was about to be performed. But in a place of desperation, they didn't trust what their eyes could see. They trusted the words of the Lord. They're desperate with nowhere else to turn and they receive God's mercy. So what's the implication for Jesus' hearers in the synagogue? Those closest to Jesus may miss God's blessing while those far away might receive it. If you don't recognize your need for the healing work of God, Jesus is saying, then I cannot save you. As he's gonna say later on, the physician doesn't come for those who are well, but those who are sick. This is a clear warning. Jesus is coming and saying, salvation is open to many. It takes more than being close to the things of God. It's only accessed by those who receive by faith, by those who are hungry, by those who are poor. Once again, Jesus brings his hearers to the point of decision. What do we make of these claims? 
And here we see the crowd makes their decision. They're filled with wrath. How dare you, Jesus? How dare you accuse us of being worse off than Naaman the Syrian or than Zarephath the Phoenician woman? They lead him to a place where they plan to execute him. And that might seem excessive, but at this time there's a lynch law that basically permits all of God's people are responsible for preserving the purity of the community of faith. And there's a law at this time that permits in the cases of flagrant disobedience for a sentence to be given on the spot without a trial. And so here, their interpretation of Jesus's words are that he is a false prophet. That's the worst of the crimes of the, of the Old Testament. And so he's flagrant. They presumably would have asked him, are you sure you want to double down on this? Jesus said, basically, you, you, you've heard what I said. And so they, they take him off to execute him. But he departs, we're told, um, because it's not his time yet. We don't know if this is a miracle. Um, this is the last verse, verse 30. We're simply told uh, that passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Luke doesn't tell us how this happens. Did he pass through them uh, with them looking on, but no one having the guts to stop him as he walked away? Did somehow some miraculous distraction come over the crowd and Jesus could walk through them? Did he activate his messianic ninja skills and just sneak through the crowd? We don't know how it happened. Luke doesn't think that's important, but what is important for us to notice is that Jesus is fully in control of his life. Jesus will, his life is not taken away. Right? Jesus came to give his life. It won't be stolen from him. He is the one who will offer himself up in the end. This brings us, of course, to the main question, I think, of the sermon. These were people who knew God's word. These were people who were in the thick of God's people. They had been rehearsing their anticipation for the Messiah for centuries, and they missed it because he was not the Messiah they thought they were hoping for. He clearly read the scriptures to show them that that was him, but it didn't look the way that they wanted him to. He was too ordinary, too familiar. They wanted someone on a white horse come to deliver them from Rome, but they missed the central thrust of these promises from Isaiah, which Jesus brings us to the very heart of. The Messiah is coming for the poor. The Messiah is coming for the sick. The Messiah is coming for those who are in bondage. The Messiah is not coming for those who have it figured out and who just need to be delivered from Rome. The Messiah is coming for those who are at a total loss, who know that they need saving ultimately. And so here we can see the question of Jesus, do you know your need? Do you know your poverty? Do you know your sickness, your real ailment? Do you know that you are in bondage? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be delivered? They thought they needed deliverance from Rome. And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't need deliverance from Rome. You need deliverance from yourselves. If you fail to see your need, then you truly are worse off than the Syrian leper, Naaman, or the Phoenician widow, Zarephath. What about us? Will we receive him or will we reject him? So that's the second point. First, we looked at the declaration of Jesus. Second, we've looked at the rejection of Jesus. And now third, let's look at the grace of Jesus. This is a clear passage of warning and rebuke from Jesus. But in the middle of our passage, there's a key detail to notice, or rather a key detail that is missing, an important omission. 
when Jesus reads from Isaiah chapter 61, like I mentioned before, the people would have been mouthing along with him. This passage was particularly well known at the time. And so one of the ways that you can focus on something as a speaker is you can emphasize something, right? You can say it louder or slow down or, or repeat it. Another way that you can emphasize something is through omission, through leading people to think that you're going to say something and then not saying it. Stand-up comedians are brilliant at this. Um, it's a powerful rhetorical device. It's one Jesus uses in a number of places, including here. When Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61, he stops rather abruptly in the middle of the last line. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where Jesus stopped. But the very next line in Isaiah is, and the day of vengeance of our God. So the Messiah was supposed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. This is a huge omission for Jesus. I picture the people in the synagogue sitting and whispering in confusion. What, what about the vengeance of God? You forgot to finish the passage, Jesus. One of the reasons their eyes were fixed on him was probably because they noticed clearly that he proclaimed liberty and release and God's favor. And then he stopped short of talking about the vengeance of God. Why did he do that? One commentator puts it this way. The omission is theologically significant in that Jesus characterizes the current time as one primarily of release and not of judgment, though he does have a warning later. In other words even in the context of a word of judgment on his hearers in Nazareth, even in the context of him warning them, you're rejecting a prophet of the living God. Jesus is making a clear statement regarding the mercy of God. Jesus has come at this time to bring release, not God's vengeance. The kingdom of God will bring both mercy and judgment, but the plan of God will unfold over time. And the emphasis of Jesus' ministry here is one of release, and of healing. Here, Jesus is emphasizing mercy and grace. The emphasis is on the favor of God and the patience of God. In this, we see the heart of God, that God desires to show mercy. The problem, you see, is that the plan of God is rejected by human beings because of spiritual blindness. So, God in his mercy has come first to open our eyes and unblock our ears, to set free our hearts from the bondage of sin that we see in our self-reliance and self-centeredness. And this is exactly what Jesus has come to do. Jesus is the one who opens our eyes to give us the ability to see Jesus for who he is. Jesus is the one who gives us the ability to accept and step towards him and begin following him. And here is his invitation. He extends it through spoken, spoken words. He says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I don't know what the look, of Jesus, like, what the look on Jesus' face would have been in the synagogue. We're not told that detail. Oftentimes when Jesus gives a word of warning or rebuke, there's a temptation to picture him as just an angry, why aren't you guys getting it? But I don't think that's the look on Jesus' face. This is, I'm not, this is speculation. When I picture Jesus 
knowing what I know about the heart of Jesus and that we see in this passage, I have to think that Jesus is not angry at these people. They are filled with wrath, but I don't think Jesus is. Jesus is inviting them. He's calling them. Do you know your need? I'm here to heal you. I'm here for your salvation. Today is the day of salvation. I don't read Jesus being angry in these words. I read him with clear urgency. I read him warning about a judgment that is to come. But I read him here saying, I'm not here for that right now. I'm here to extend the mercy and grace of God to you. So the question before us this morning is this. What do you think about Jesus? Perhaps let me ask the question this way. Where are you along the journey that we see in this passage? Let me describe it this way. We see a little bit of a trajectory in our passage. The people begin with marveling at his words. Then they move to doubt and demanding a sign from Jesus. Then they're filled with anger at his words and they reject him. But as we read later on, even if we fast forward to past the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, we know that some of the people who would have been in this synagogue later came to follow him. His own brothers rejected him over the course of his ministry. And we realize, we read later on that they come to faith and they come to follow him. As we read in the, in the rest of the New Testament, we see that Jesus' earthly ministry began the fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah, only to be taken up and continued by the ministry of the church who was called to care for the poor, to provide and pray for the sick, to pursue liberty for the captive. And so to put it this way, where are you along this journey? Are you filled with wrath about him? Or, I mean, I don't know anyone today who describes themselves as being filled with wrath. Maybe you're one of those people. I'd love to hear more about your story. Are you angry at what Jesus says about you and your need? Are you coming to a place where you see and accept him for who he is and who he says he was? Are you beginning to experience and live in the liberty, the sight, the favor of God? Are you experiencing this favor with others? demonstrating it alongside the church for the sake of others. Where are you along this journey? Sojourn, this question is for you. This is not just for the person who wouldn't consider themselves a Christian. The world is gonna be the world. It's not a surprise that Jesus is rejected by the world. But what about in here? What about in our hearts? Are you a lover of self or a lover of neighbor? Are you someone who participates in the liberation and provision for all, or are you a hoarder of your time, your talent, and your treasures? Speaking of liberty for the captives, the Apostle Paul talks about strongholds in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul writes it this way. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ. To give a speedy interpretation of that, Paul's talking about being accused of walking according to the flesh as an apostle. And he acknowledges, though we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. What does this look like? We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Here's why I bring this up. Paul employs the language of bondage here. 
strongholds, and in particular in the area of our thought life. And so Sojourn, what are the strongholds in your thought life that continue to hold against Jesus? What are the areas of sin that are still hidden? What are the areas of selfishness that have yet to be explored? Think of it this way, where are you waging war according to the flesh? What are you looking to in order to combat those things in you? Whatever your answer is, do you hear Jesus' invitation in this passage? Jesus doesn't bring a word of judgment. He brings a word of mercy and grace and invitation. Jesus came to demonstrate and declare the patience of God for wayward sinners. And Sojourn, I hope that this is what we see in this passage, the invitation to come to him, to see him for who he is, to experience in greater and greater measure and begin to share this ministry of the Messiah that Isaiah promised. To be a ministry, a church where we were experiencing the liberty that God came to offer us in Christ. Where, where there is actually good news for the poor in our midst. Where there are those who are blind who are gradually being given their sight back. This is the kind of community that the church is as we continue the work of Jesus. God is patient. He's also urgent. And so that's the question I want to leave you with. What do you think about Jesus today? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage where we read about just this glorious promise of restoration that your people waited for for centuries and that the Lord Jesus stood up in a synagogue and read and sat and taught and explained, this is about me. Thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you for giving us this warning through Jesus that what we think about you is a really important and urgent question. Even as it is urgent, Lord, I'm grateful that urgency uh, doesn't oppose, but actually goes hand in hand with patience. I'm so grateful for your patience with me. I'm so grateful for your patience with this church. And I pray that you would help cultivate in us a patience with ourselves and one another in a way that enables us to actually experience freedom rather than more uh, expectations or um, what have you. Lord, you, you came to give us freedom. You came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here, as we experience the year of your favor, I pray that you would give us greater freedom, greater confidence in our heavenly reward, uh, a greater ability to see with your eyes rather than the blind ones that we used to have. Please continue to work in us as you have anointed us as your community by your spirit to experience these things and to share these things with the world, starting with our neighbors who are right next to us here in the Heights. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.